Amen. Well, we are not turning this morning to the shepherds watching their sheep or to the wise men following the star. You can come to Ebenezer uh, tonight at half six if you want to think about one of those uh, passages. But this morning, I'd like us to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, it's page 1201 in your pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2, and reading from verse 1. I'd like as we approach Christmas to ask the question, uh, why did Christ come? Why did Christ come in to the world? And this is the first place, the first passage that we look at as we seek to answer that question. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It is not to angels that He has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, 
I will put my trust in Him. And again he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. So a long chapter and a challenging passage of Scripture. We're going to look at five points, but there's quite a lot of overlap between all of those points And so we're going to go at quite a rate of knots. We're going to go at a fair pace through all of our five points. But before we come to the first of those five points, I want to tackle the question that immediately became apparent to me as I read this uh, passage, this chapter of Scripture. And that question is this, what does God mean? Or what does the the author of Hebrews mean in verse 10 when we are told that God made Jesus perfect through suffering? In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was in some way imperfect before He came to earth and suffered as a man? Was there some flaw, was there some failing within the Lord Jesus that had to be fixed, something that had to be put right, some stain of sin that suffering somehow managed to rub out. Well, of course, that's not the case. That that contradicts everything that Scripture clearly teaches about Jesus. In fact, it contradicts everything that Hebrews clearly teaches about Jesus. To believe that would be to believe that the author of Hebrews suddenly changes his mind. So, Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Chapter 7, 
Such a high priest meets our needs. He is one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Chapter 9, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our hearts from deeds that lead to death so that we can worship the living God by the power of the eternal Spirit. Christ offered Himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Clearly, the author of Hebrews knows and wants us to know that Christ is perfect, morally perfect, without sin, without stain. He is the lamb without blemish. He was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. But His life, His suffering, His dying as a man on the cross for us made Him our perfect pioneer, our perfect priest, our perfect Savior. In that sense, Christ was made perfect by His suffering. His obedience became obedience that was tested in the fire of life lived as a man, as a human being in this world, broken as it is by sin. And so He was perfectly qualified to obey where we disobeyed, to triumph where we have failed, and to conquer as our representative, as one of us, as a flesh and blood human being. Where Adam failed, Christ conquered. In Adam all die, but in Christ all will live. So, our first point, why did Jesus come? Firstly, to earn what Adam lost. That's verses 5 to 9, to earn what Adam lost. So, God created the world, and then He made human beings, Adam and Eve, and He told these human beings, He told Adam and Eve to rule over the world that God had made. Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There is God's blueprint for humanity. But Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve rebelled against the rule 
of God, and they became slaves of sin and the fruit of sin, which is death. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5 points us to a new world that will be created, a world to come. Hebrews 2 verse 5 says, it is not to angels he has subjected the world to come. No, it's not to angels. It's to human beings. Human beings found not in Adam, but in Christ. There is a day coming when all things will be made new, and we who are in Christ will reign with him again. It will be like an eternal Eden, but even better. He came to earn what Adam lost. Secondly, he came to bring many sons to glory. That's verses 10 to 13. Verse 10 in the NIV speaks of Jesus as the author of our salvation. The King James Version says the captain of our salvation, and other translations say the pioneer of our salvation. The Word speaks of one who leads by example, one who goes ahead of his people to prepare the way, and then when it's ready, to beckon his people on to join with him. He has gone into glory, and we, his people, will follow him there. One of our own, a human being, a man is in glory. A human being is at the right hand of the Father, one of our own. And he beckons us to pick up our cross and to follow Him all the way to glory. It's only possible because Christ came as a man. It's only possible because of the life that He lived and the death that He died in our place. We've been enjoying studying uh, Philippians, through the Discipleship Explored course in our Sunday evenings. We've been looking at the book of Philippians, and recently we looked at that famous passage in Philippians 2. Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, literally emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, so because he humbled himself in the incarnation, the crucifixion, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the humility that saw Jesus come and take on flesh to be born as a baby in Bethlehem, to live as a man, to suffer, to die in our place on the cross, that humility, that is the path that leads to glory. Because He humbled Himself, God exalted Him. God raised Him not only to life, but He raised Him to take His place at the Father's right hand. And we who are followers of Jesus must pick up our cross and follow Him along that road of humility all the way to glory. So don't be discouraged, Christian, follower of Jesus, child of God. Don't be discouraged when life is hard. Know that you are on your way home. If I go, said Jesus to his followers 2,000 years ago, if I go, I will prepare a place for you. There is a place prepared for you, and it will be worth it all. The best is yet to be. He is leading us on to glory. We have wee glimpses of that glory here in this life, don't we? We glimpses, we tastes of the kingdom of God, but one day it will come in all of its fullness. The old will be cast aside and swept away, and all things will be made new. We look forward to that day. Thirdly, He came to bring us into the family of God. Verses 11 to 13. Verse 11 says, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is amazing. You think of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. C.S. Lewis said, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Actually, I think John Calvin said it first, but I couldn't find that, I couldn't find that quote on the internet, so I'm playing it safe. C.S. Lewis certainly said it. And whoever said it first, it's wonderfully true. The Son of God became a man to enable men and women to become sons and daughters of God. All who receive Christ are given the right to become children of God. We are adopted into the family of God, and we get to say with Jesus, we get to address God the Father with Jesus as Abba, as 
incredible. It's incredible to think that this God, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who created and sustains all things, this God in Christ is not only our helper, that's amazing enough as it is, but He's not only our helper, He is our Father. Through Christ, we are adopted into the family of God forever. What cause have we to fear if God is our Father? Nothing. Nothing in life and nothing even in death. Because, fourthly, He came to defeat and to disarm Satan. The NIV says to destroy Satan, not in the sense of, of causing Satan not to exist anymore, not, not annihilation. Satan still exists, but he is the, the toothless lion. He has been defeated, and we have nothing to fear in Christ Jesus. Verses 14 to 16. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. So Satan has no hold on us anymore. That's not to say at times that we won't fear death. But it is to say that the, the closer we get to Christ Jesus in our walk with Him, the more we are able to say with the Apostle Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. The more we are able even to say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of these points you'll notice are for the future. We have glimpses, we have tastes of that great and glorious future that is ours in Christ Jesus. We are a people who are watching and waiting for Christ to come and for these promises to be fulfilled. What though about the here and now? When we are tempted, when we are tested, when we are tried, when we are tired, when life is hard, when we are suffering, when it doesn't feel fair, when it seems to be relentless, when it all seems to be too much and we feel overwhelmed. What about the here and now? Well, not only do we look forward to that eternal weight of glory that outweighs our light momentary afflictions, but we also rejoice that we have a great high priest. We have one who has been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are, and yet is without sin. Our fifth and final point, he came 
to become our sympathetic Savior, our perfect priest. Verses 17 and 18. Verse 18, the last verse, says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have one in Christ who understands. Not just because he is God and he understands all things. He understands as one who has experienced it himself. He has lived as a human being in this world, as broken as it is by sin. He's experienced what it is to be tired, to be hungry, to be wearied, to be tempted, to be tested, to suffer uh, rejection and betrayal and grief and sorrow and pain to suffer even death for us. He has experienced all of these things firsthand. He's not aloof. He's not remote. He's not untouched by our weakness and our pain. He knows. He truly knows. And He truly cares. The one who wept with those who grieved, even when he knew that a happy ending was just around the corner, that one still cares for his people as one who has suffered himself. A bruised reed he will not break. So look forward to that glorious future that is yours in Christ Jesus and rejoice, but also know that in the here and now, in the not yet, in the waiting time when life can be hard, in the struggling, know that your perfect priest will be pleased to draw near, to comfort and to console, to encourage and to strengthen, to show the sufficiency of His grace for the day and for the circumstances that you find yourself within. How thankful we should be for the coming of Christ, for the life that He lived, for the death that He died, and for the victory that He secured for His people. He is the one who earned what Adam lost. He is the one who is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He brings those who receive Him into the family of God. He has defeated Satan and sin and death. He is a sympathetic Savior. He is the perfect priest who loves and who cares for His people. How thankful we should be this Christmas time and always for the coming of Christ into the world for us and for the love of God that saw Him send His Son into the world for us. So let's rejoice. Let's give thanks to God as we stand to sing our closing hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Thank you.